Hello everyone, welcome to Radically Loved Radio. I wanted to create a place where people can go to to get inspired, get motivated, or find some clarity and get tools to create a radically loved life. I will do my best to provide information on a variety of subjects, including yoga, holistic health, life coaching, spirituality, meditation, and overall mindful living. Each episode will bring you some of the world's best spiritual leaders, entrepreneurs, yoga teachers, coaches, along with some of my closest friends, and we will talk about their life experiences and journeys to create something more out of their lives and how they continue to grow to make that happen. Hey guys, Rosie here. I just want to say I am so grateful that you're listening. We are just getting a massive amount of response on this podcast, and I am so grateful that you're a part of this radically loved community, that you're enjoying the content and that you're enjoying all the guests and that you're still here and you're still working on yourself and your journey and your path. And I pray that you've received some tools listening to the guests or listening to any of my ideas or topics on meditation or yoga and how these tools can help you create a life of purpose to continue to help us give you the best content you can subscribe to this podcast and most of the time you can just do it from your phone from itunes click subscribe and write a review this really helps us continue this path and this journey and we love doing it so much and again i'm so grateful that you're here let us know what you thought thanks for listening I'm so excited to have you on the show again, and I've been just waiting to talk to you about your new book, The Dharma of the Princess Bride, and just to kind of talk about all the ways in which it relates, obviously, to our lives, but especially now with the current uh, social and cultural climate, how it it can relate even more so uh, just in the way that we live our lives. So... Uh, thank you for being on. Thanks for having me back, Rosie. It's it's great to be here again. Yay! So, you know, for the people that that don't know, uh, just a quick snippet of your background, who you are, and why you wrote this incredible book. Well, thanks for calling it incredible. So, um, I'm uh, I'm Ethan Nickter, and I'm uh, have a title as a um, senior teacher in uh, the Shambhala tradition, which is a very uh, westernized and globalized uh, form of Tibetan Buddhism in terms of its psychological and spiritual teachings of origin. Um, and, uh, you know, I grew up in, uh, obviously, the United States and, and, you know, born in 1978, grew up in the 80s and 90s and, you know, was a big product, obviously, of pop culture and alternative culture and things like that. And, um uh, I, uh, am also, uh, have been asked a lot of times as a teacher and as just, you know, working with students and asked myself, um, you know, h- how to integrate, you know, Buddhist teachings or mindfulness or being a meditation practitioner into personal relationships. And, um, so it's definitely something, uh, I wanted to talk about. I got to talk about it a little bit in my last book, The Road Home, but wanted to go deeper. And, 
you know, the, the other origin of this book was that the, the real origin of, of this book was wanting to talk about relationships in a way that I didn't require me to come across as a relationship expert. Um, I actually think that term, as I talk about in the book, is an oxymoron yeah. because um, relationship is at least two people. An expert is one person, which I'm not saying that there aren't great relationship therapists who can help us with our relationships sure. or relationship guides. But the notion of expertise it seems like we always approach relationships as if somebody must know better how they work. Huh. And um, like there's some expert somewhere who, you know, has a perfect uh, holidays every year with their family, <laughs> just falls in love perfectly and everybody right. feels really good about it. And, you know, all their friends always get along with them and no problems at work. And, you know, that just, you know, even political debates are done with, you know, just like total respect and dignity and, um, you know, I don't think that person really exists who can who can uh, have that expertise because you're always relating to other people. So I wanted a way to discuss the matter that I didn't have to come across as a relationship expert. And I remembered that uh, right before my first book was published, which was by a small publisher called Wisdom, they had published this book called The Dharma of Star Wars and um, more like a manual, like a fun kind of manual if the Jedi code were analyzed in Buddhist terms. But I remember saying if I ever um, uh, did something like that, it would be with The Princess Bride. So, you know, using pop culture allowed me to really look at the narratives that our modern spiritual lives are lived by and, and sort of what we love. And I have a lot of really personal, deep connections to, to Princess Bride. And um, it also allowed me to sort of create an, uh, a very personal and playful narrative set against um, talking about relationships, you know, so uh, friendship romance and family are the three sections of the book so um you know my two favorite chapter titles there's one chapter in the romance section called there is no buttercup <laughs> and but but my um very favorite chapter title in this book is um fred savage is a jerk and i am fred savage because i was um literally almost exactly the same age as fred savage when the when the movie came out so the the notion of a spoiled grandson being read this amazing deconstructed fairy tale by his grandfather um uh, felt very personal too, but huh. he is a jerk to his grandfather at the beginning <laughs> of the movie, at least. <laughs> how and and how is it that you related to to that? And look, I mean, for the people that read it, you you really disclose a lot of you know your personal relationship, and I know that you know your father's also a very prevalent, well known teacher, which I've taken some of his courses, by the way, online, and he's amazing. Your dad's like the I think he's like so hilarious. And so, so wise. And this is, you know, part of, of you growing up and you've been in this world your entire life. And I know that there's a relationship to Christopher Guest, right? He was a friend of your father's. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I really like how you interweave your own personal uh, stories in into, you know, the, the mindfulness of relationships, really, which which is what this book is about. How 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 is it that? So if, I know you talk about this, but which character do you resonate with the most and why? Yeah, um, it's, it's a it's a that's all a, a, are great questions. I mean, so the origin of this is, you know, it came out in fall of 1987. So 30 a little over 30 years ago now, the book was released to, mm -hmm. to kind of coincide with the 30th anniversary. Um, and when I went back to say, like, what was actually going on in my life. So so the reason I saw this movie, I had never read the book, which was 
supposedly very popular among people in Hollywood, but they never thought they could turn it into a good movie until Rob Reiner got the rights to it. And he had had so many successes in his recent movies that they let him do it. Um, but you know, people my age didn't really know about the book very much. So, so this movie was like, what is this like a fairy tale? And the, the reason I saw it was because, um, my father's one of his best friends and his best friend from childhood, uh, the actor, Christopher Guest, you know, played, played one of the bad guys in it. Um, the six, the six fingered man, uh, Count Rugen. So, um, so it was, uh, but when I went back, I, I remembered like, and I remember talking to my mother about this because I was like, what actually was going on? You know, I remember it being a rough time, but you know, that, that year was, um, the year that my parents' Buddhist teacher, who was, you know, a real central figure in their life, Chogyam Trungpa, uh, died. And, yeah. and I think by all estimations died really young, you know, he was in his late forties and I think his students weren't, you know, really prepared for that. Um, and uh, this was uh, a year I was having a hard time in school. Uh, this was the year my parents, my two Buddhist parents, went through a, a very difficult divorce. Um, and this was the year my uh, grand, my own grandfather and his wife, my step-grandmother, um, uh, committed suicide together because he had advanced-stage Parkinson's and they sort of wanted to uh, end things uh, uh, painlessly rather than having a long, debilitating stretch. So... Um, you know, so much stuff going on that was related to family relationships and spiritual and my family's spiritual heritage. And so to set that against this sort of like, um, you know, really hilarious um, fairy tale. But it's also, you know, the message of The Princess Bride is actually that life isn't a fairy tale. It, 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 there's never been a movie in, in or that did such a good do- job of deconstructing a genre Um you know, kind of undercutting all these sort of very, um, very sort of cliched and sugary ways that we look to fairy tales or rom-coms for happiness, but it still is incredibly celebratory of life. So it's like, it's very rare that you have something that completely makes fun of its own genre and celebrates it at the same time. So it felt, I mean, even though it's not a Buddhist movie, when it came into my life, my personal connections with it and, um, also that it's all about relationships. I mean, it's got great friendships. It's got um, great uh, uh, family, grandfather, grandson dynamic. It's got, um, you know, this really amazing uh, non-fairy tale, but fairy, totally fairy tale romance. Um, you know, it seemed just like a perfect palette to, to be personal about relationships. And, you know, that's, that's the other thing I, I really feel um, and felt. Uh, the other theme is like, really, if you are going to be a person who's helping others or guiding others or offering insights to others about the spiritual path and, you know, especially a very psychologically oriented spiritual path. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really helpful to be, uh, uh, open, you know, maybe not exhibitionist, but at least open about your own process. And, um, cause otherwise people, I've noticed this a lot. People put teachers on a pedestal yeah. and, and that doesn't really help because it separates uh, the teacher from the student. Then the teacher oftentimes pretends that their, their you know, consciousness is completely pure around relationship uh, uh, issues. And then uh, it turns out that they have problems relating to people. And then that's a huge, huge um, sort of, it, it breaks away at the foundation of the teacher's credibility. You know? And I think, especially in this era, 2017, when there's so much coming out about, um, power dynamics, hierarchies, 
you know, there've been some scandals in the in the Buddhist world, some scandals in the yoga world yeah. recently. Yeah. yeah, it's just really important to be open about talking about these things. And um, you know, I, I do think that the teachers that we look to can be people that we think are have some insights into this process. But as soon as we think they're not also on a path themselves, it's um, it, it seems to become really harmful that lack of transparency and that lack of openness, and then we start expecting things that aren't really appropriate. And you know, rather than um, rather than purity, you know, I really think, especially with all the things going on right now in the in the world and in, in power hierarchies, especially with you know straight white males and not just straight white males, but um, uh, mostly that you know being. Uh, uh, observed as you know being uh, either erratic or straight up abusive in their yes. behavior i think it's really important to just lay these things out so that we are kind of you know we don't have to develop perfect action we just have to develop some kind of humility some kind of uh emotional curiosity some kind of empathy towards ourselves and others and um and so that desire for transparency and also to be playful you know uh gives the book a little bit of a memoir quality. And, uh, you know, um, uh, I'm, I'm very careful to say that, you know, pretty much everybody I mentioned in the book knew I was writing about them or, or has written publicly <laughs> themselves. So, right. um, so, uh, yeah, it, I it, no, I, I want to like, just everything that you're saying, I, I, I love that you're really, uh, talking about this because I think it's such a big topic right now. And I know that you're very like, obviously socially active in, in the way that you, that you bring these Buddhist teachings to your community and, and to the world. And I'm always following you on social media. And I always, <laughs> to me, and, and just maybe it's because I know your voice and I know how you, you teach and how you write. Uh, I, I think I can understand that. And I think you've talked about this before, how pop culture has become our spiritual text and the way that we we really can begin to relate to uh, mindfulness or, or teachings that are meant to uh, allow us to see more empathy or see the interconnectedness between each other. And, and I think that just you're speaking to that. And, and I, what I'd like to know is, is just to, to stay on the topic that you're talking about, how we can begin to create that within our own lives and within the community at large, especially when we're seeing so much injustice in, in, mm -hmm. in a lot of different ways, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I also think, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just take full responsibility for, for my views on the topic because I am a, a progressive political thinker. I think that's, that's where my Buddhist practice and also, you know, my yoga practice, um, uh, when, when my baby daughter lets me have a few minutes of asana practice in the morning, <laughs> <laughs> I still get my meditation in every day, but, um, uh, but my my asana practice is is a little bit embarrassing these days with 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 excuses. But um, anyway, back to the point. I'm you know I I feel like these practices have have led me deeper into being a progressive political thinker. Um, I think we have to like I, I think it's a little too enabling to say that these teachings don't lead towards um, at least a deep contemplation of our interdependence and our and our political views and. Um, you know, I, I do think that, you know, so I'll take ownership of that. But I think one of the worst things about the Trump era, you know, which is hopefully going to be over 
in the not too distant future. Um, there, there are signs that it's <laughs> that more people are are sick of it. Um, right. um, but one of the things that that represents, you know, that I always saw in Trump, because we've had him in, in New York for 40 years and, and you have people like him, you know, who you could argue if you want to be egalitarian about this are on both sides of the political party spectrum, you know, when you bring in somebody like Harvey Weinstein. But what Trump really said to his followers and and mostly empowered white males is if somebody tells you that you have to grow or become more mature or listen to them more or become more generous or more humble, you know, or more thoughtful, all of that is crap, you know. You do not have to be on any path. You can just claim your power. You can just pretend whatever you want to be true is true. Just lie. If somebody asks you a question, just lie about it. And if you can hold to the lie, which is clearly what he does almost every time he's asked about anything, um, you will be you will hold on to your power. And so the notion of actually like people who are in power and, you know, my power, other than being a, a straight white male in our society is that I'm a, a teacher in certain ways. I'm also a student for sure. Um, and there's also many people in my life I have nothing to teach and they don't regard me that way. But in in this way that I, the work that I do, there's a power of saying like, we're going on this path together and I may have some insights or some guidance. Mm-hmm. And those people have to get more, more humble and have to get more empathetic and have to, you know, I'm, I'm doing most of the talking right now, which maybe I'll, I should stop, but have to get better at listening <laughs> to what's really going on with others it's, and, and, and get more invested in the truth rather than like, let's just make, let's just have a PR spin on whatever we want it to be. Like wh- what is actually happening here? You know, you're, you're part of the world's on fire right now. Yeah. You can't pretend that's not happening and we have to hum- humble ourselves to the earth, you know? Um, and so Anyway, I just think it's really important that spiritual teachers are kind of leading the way and saying, I want to get more empathetic. I want to care more about others. I want to empower other people. And so to do that, I'm, my way of doing that in this book is to just be sort of uh, transparent about some of the relationship processes I went through so people don't think I'm a relationship expert because, uh, you know, you can ask my wife about that one. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should interview her next, <laughs> see what she thinks about that. Um, no, I think that that's actually, uh, it, it, it's going to inform the next question, you know, because this, you know, everything that you teach and, and what you talk about in this book is about relationships with family, with romance, with friendship. And uh, what I found really uh, interesting and, and unique about this is how, well, just in general, how stories uh, help give us a sense of self or like a sense of who we are, you know? And I, I really uh, love the way that, that that happens, especially when teachers bring in their, their uh, spiritual uh, practice, you know, or, or to just show us different ways in which we can become better uh, better people, you know, to become more empathetic, more kind. Um, so, so I really, I love that. And so, so for you, I I would imagine that you wouldn't have written this book if you didn't feel the same way. How do you think, how do you think that we can, um, we can bring more of, of that wander into our life where we can, we can learn from stories like, like a rom-com, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that's the other thing is like, uh, I, 
I always get very, very um, uh, confused when people say Buddhism says this, you know, um, or or, you know, yoga says this or this tradition says that because one within any tradition, there's many different perspectives. But also, if you look at any spiritual teaching, it comes it arises in the context of a particular uh, cultural moment, you know, and a particular uh um, personal moment, you know, so the cultural stories and the personal stories and having that context always is going to influence our interpretation of any so-called, um, spiritual teaching, you know? So for example, with Buddhism to understand that the reason the Buddha first talked about suffering, you know, rather than first talking about joy, for example, is because he was talking to these, um, you know, spiritual ascetics who were literally starving themselves, you know, and he wanted to just acknowledge their struggle first, you know, so there's an actual story behind the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. It's not just this thing that is, you know, written on a on, on a tablet somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's a, there's there's a conversation going on. And and so our pop culture kind of creates that conversation, you know, and you could say that the way the Buddhist story is told is uh, changes based on who's telling it. You know, if if Thich Nhat Hanh tells the story, it's actually much more a story of spiritual activism than if um, someone else tells the story. Right. Sure. And and so, you know, then this moment of like like so, for example, here's another I, I found this really interesting that there's a there's a best selling book this year, which is a, a really good book. Um, written by Robert Wright, who's a um, uh, evolutionary biologist and also a, a you know a, a spiritual thinker called "Why Buddhism Is True," you know, and he it's it's a scientific book about Buddhism, but he talks about the movie The Matrix for the first ten pages uh-huh. because he has to locate um, our experience within some kind of cultural narrative in order for it to make any sense at all, you know. And we're, and we're always doing that. So um, the fairy tale, um, the fantasy story, and the rom-com, uh, and a deconstructed fairy tale, because we don't really believe in fairy tales anymore, right. which is right. one that, that's kind of where The Princess Bride picks up, is like, it actually reconvinces a grandson who's like, you know, romance is stupid and fairy tales are stupid, um, to actually believe in fairy tales again, right? So it picks up at a moment where we're like, we don't actually even believe in our own stories anymore and reinvests us in the story, which is a very uh, good narrative for the for the modern moment. And so that kind of ironic narrative, you know, I don't think it's just my late genera- generation X uh, uh, generation or it's the hipster generation or whatever, but that's a really good narrative to use as a starting place to look at like how we mindfully engage relationships. It's like, Let's start with this. We don't believe in fairy tales anymore. So what are we going to do about it? You know, how are we going to work with uh, relationships in that space? So there's always a personal story and there's always a cultural story. And until you understand those two, you know, whatever the teachings are, whatever the instructions are, they're not going to make a lot of sense, you know. Yeah. And and people. The other thing is people are going to feed whatever the list of teachings are. People are going to feed them through their own um uh, personal narratives and cultural narratives without knowing they're doing that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, part of my question, just because we, we need to utilize these types of stories or metaphors 
are, are ways for us to relate to them in, in a way that we find compelling or, or important, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, you know, what's interesting to me, you know, especially coming from the yogic tradition and studying Tantra and studying Vedic texts, um, you know, that different things are translated and, you know, like um, certain teachings perhaps get translated in a way uh, that we can understand them. Do you think that we lose the depth of, of the meaning or of the teaching because we've translated it so much? Does that make sense? Does this question make sense? Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, I mean, the translator has has all the power. Yeah. You know, I'm, I mean, I, I like I, I know I don't read Sanskrit or Tibetan, but I, I know at least in transliteration, a lot of the words I, I um, uh, remember, you know, I, I speak kind of decent Spanish and, you know, <laughs> studied some complete in, in college. And I remember reading uh, a book of of Pablo Neruda's poetry where it was in um, translation. So one page was the Spanish, the, the other page across was the English. And they even chose to translate the same word in different places on the same page differently into English. Uh -huh. So so that person who's making that choice obviously has a lot of power, you know. Yeah. And the person who chose the word suffering, for example, the one that I just used for dukkha, rather yeah. than like dissatisfaction right. or a feeling of offness. One, suffering is a Christian word, you know, so it's, so it's a, I mean, it's an English word, but it's a word that's used in relation to a certain uh, Christian experience. So there's a, there's the person who's doing the translation, if they're just doing an academic translation, is going to have a lot of power. And then the other translation is we have to translate it through our experience, which means translating it through our stories, you know, yeah. and then, and then something like suffering might come alive a little bit more and you say, Oh, it doesn't mean I'm like uh, in pain all the time. It means something feels off or there's some sense of misalignment uh, with my own heart or experience yeah. that needs to be worked with. And and um, and you have enough experiences through your personal stories of like what that quality of um, broken heartedness or, or just feeling uh, burdened in some way feels like. And that those experiences are going to come to life through our practice and they're going to come to life through um the stories we tell you know and uh and so i think it's it's really important that that a linguistic translation is is a very superficial beginning of a conversation about what teach what any body of teachings really mean yeah yeah i mean i find it so so interesting especially now you know with again utilizing these types of practices to begin to make sense with the madness that's happening, you know? Mm. And so I find these types of stories or these teachings to be so um, comforting in the fact that, oh, we, we still can make a difference. We still can make a choice. We still can be the voice uh, of understanding somebody else's perspective. It's like you were talking mm -hmm. about being a relationship expert. And you actually, we talked about this when you were on the last time, I think, when you're like, I would be, so, I think you said something like, I would be wary of somebody saying they're a relationship expert, you know, <laughs> because it's like, you're right, it, it does take two people. And I think that putting yourself in that position does make it one-sided. Um, but, but I think that that speaks to, you know, our ability to, um, understand an idea, but also be able to put it into action as opposed to just 
marry something and then be like, this is the way it is. You have to do it this way or it's not going to be right. I mean, I think that that's what we're, we're why we are in the place that we're in yeah. politically anyway, you know? Right, right, right. And there's, that's the other interesting thing is like the other extreme of this is, is like, you could take what I said or what we're talking about and just turn it into a total like false equivalence, like moral relativism, like no teachings really say anything, you know, um, it's all a matter of perspective, you know, um, whether you supported Trump or Hillary, like it's all even, you know, this sort of false equivalence model where, where there's no principles to live by, where all flaws are just subjective and you know and that's not where we're taking it we're saying that the the actual principles uh come through by living them and come through by practicing and yeah. and so i i i think it's but i think it's really important to develop a personal relationship you know i mean you know i i talk about uh, a night out after i was um dumped and heartbroken in the um in the chapter about emptiness and dating uh, in, in the middle section of the book, you know, in one of the reviews, which was actually a really great review in the Los Angeles Review books, said, um, you know, uh, not to, you know, gave me many compliments on my writing and then said, um, uh, you know, one, just one quibble, like the Buddha said, you know, alcohol should be abandoned or something like that. Actually, what the Buddha said is intoxicants. And he said this in 2,600 years ago. So my tradition takes the approach, obviously, a, a lot of people along the path, alcohol, um, alcohol should always be moderated in my humble opinion. But uh, a lot of people on the path, that is a thing to be eliminated. But when you talk about intoxicants, you can say like, actually intoxicants means that which you see as taking your mind away from uh, being able to work with things uh, compassionately and clearly. Um, so for me, a glass of wine doesn't do that. Sometimes uh, a glass of wine actually one makes me more present. Four glasses of wine pretty much always makes me less present. But um, <laughs> but, you know, I really think if the Buddha was talking about intoxicants uh, today, he would be talking about smartphones oh, as yeah. his number one, as his number one topic. Uh -huh. So to say, well, the Buddha said don't drink alcohol. You know, that is a very limited cultural interpretation of a of a person saying, here are some of the principles you might want to apply when working with your mind. Right. Yes. So um, then we could get into like uh, you could say, well, I drink you. You're addicted to your smartphone. What's the difference? And the idea is that we're tr actually trying to be more present and we're noticing how we escape that. And if we can tell that through our own story, that's when things start to come alive. But. I'm I'm like a hundred percent convinced, which is too convinced. I'm ninety percent convinced that if the Buddha were alive today, the way he would have written the precepts would have talked about technology as an intoxicant. Oh, I totally one hundred percent agree, and this is literally like a topic that is never ending. You know, um, this idea that we we maybe have gone too far with our usage and everything that we do on our phones, like literally our entire lives revolve around it. You know, like I had to take, I, I do this occasionally where I'll, I'll take a detox or like usually on Sundays or something like I, I won't look at it at all. I won't answer any, anything. It's just like, I don't have a phone for a day. And even that is enough for me to be able to just reset and not feel so uh, 
connected to it or I'll just leave it. You know, we might go like touring out, go to dinner or something and I'll just leave my phone at home, you know, because you don't need your phone if you're going out to dinner with your spouse or your, you know, your person, uh, unless obviously you have kids and then that's a different story. But I just, I find it such a, such an interesting, uh, time that we're in with, with those types of intoxicants that I feel are way more toxic to our relationships than, I don't know, everything is, I guess, but I just really feel like right now having smartphones is, is, uh, is just distracting us from living our lives, you know? Right. Except and for my, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just saying my only reason for bringing that up, cause we could have a whole nother conversation about that was that your, your cultural moment and your personal experience is always going to affect how you, uh, work with spiritual practices, you know? Mm -hmm. So our story these days is really about technology in a lot of ways. And that would be part of the, the, um, the way that we approach any of these classic spiritual teachings has to include our, our modern experience. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, one thing I did want to ask you about, um, uh, is to maybe explain, uh, what the broader context is in the book, uh, of as you wish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the, 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 as you wish, very famous line, right, is actually um, set in two relational uh, experiences in the movie, yeah. um, which actually turns it, it's almost like this flip from being a, a fairy tale rom-com when uh, Wesley, uh, aka Dread Pirate Roberts, the man in black um, farm boy, uh, says it to, um, uh, says it to Buttercup. Um, and then it's flipped when the the grandfather says it to the grandson at the end of the movie. So it's 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 talking about the devotional aspect of true love, you know, and um, we could think about that as some kind of devotional love to a spiritual path or spiritual teacher as well. Um, but one of the things that I think is so um, interesting about these relationships uh, is the notion of, uh, how commitment works in, in relationship. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, what the first is the, as you wish of, of a romantic partnership. So talk to, you know, you might think of that as a commitment that a person chooses to make when we take on vows of partnership, like, like marriage, um, uh, which was the way I was kind of thinking about it as, as a sort of way of saying, I'm going to show up, you know, and I'm going to submit to this relationship, you know, kind of beyond, just uh, my everyday irritations and work with my fight or flight response. So uh, at the end of the, the, the romance chapter, I talk, the romance section, there's a chapter on um, marriage or marriage, to pronounce it correctly. <laughs> That's right. And as, as this sort of first way of thinking about as you wish, as a, as a sort of like committing to a, to a path, and then uh, talk about it as sort of devotion to our family lineage, uh, family relationships, which can, which can be incredibly tough. And sometimes we feel like we were put in the wrong family or, you know, feel very distanced from our family. And other times, you know, family is completely our devotion. So um, that's what As You Wish meant for me. It's a really good sort of uh, statement of real uh, commitment and loyalty and devotion within our relationships. Yeah. And, um, and just to, I mean, just, I want, want to see if you can elaborate a little bit more on 
uh, our enlightenment and, and being around our family and why our spiritual practice just seems to be thrown out the window when, when yeah. we're in those situations. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the family question, obviously, you know, with everything I said about my family origins around the movie was a big part for me. Yeah. Um, that's the last section of the of the book is the Dharma of family. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm fascinated by family as a practice. Uh, Chogyam Trungpa, the founder of my tradition, um, uh, said, and it's a great like kind of quote that it's possible you could become enlightened everywhere except around your family. <laughs> uh, that family could be the hardest practice, you know. Yeah. And so, um, I think my father said this. He might be quoting someone else, but he. I remember a quote that he made, uh, and if he's quoting someone else, I apologize, but he said, the reason your family can push all your buttons is because they installed them. Um, so there's, there's some intimacy, there's some proximity, there's some reminder of ourselves. We work with so much self-hatred and self-aggression along these paths that the people who most remind us of ourselves often provoke that, uh, provoke, sometimes provoke that claustrophobia, um, Etc. Um, sometimes we view when we feel like we're part of a family, we view whatever uh, issues arise or whatever mistakes we feel are made are, are amplified in our heart and mind. Yeah. And I think just, you know, I don't think I came to any real conclusion in that section, but there was a lot of sort of uh, thought and struggle and practice that went into it. And the notion of actually, um, being willing to uh, practice keeping our family in our hearts through, you know, loving kindness meditation, through really contemplating the different aspects of our lineage. And also, you know, then expanding that to viewing uh, human beings as part of the same family, you know, and which is which is actually true. We are actually, you know, uh, we are all cousins with each other. So I had the contemplation uh, at the the end of the book about what would I do if one of my cousins was Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, um, who loves the Princess Bride. That's one of the ironic things. He's like one of the biggest fans of the Princess Bride <laughs> in the world. He does amazing impressions of all the characters. I got to talk to Mandy Patinkin and Ego Montoya, who's also a meditator uh, about writing my book in the movie, because he had written this op-ed piece for Time Magazine when he found out that Ted Cruz loved the movie, saying that he thought Ted Cruz missed the point, how it wasn't really about revenge, how it's about true love, etc. So that notion, let's say you could have a cousin who you disagree with about so many things as much as I disagree with Ted Cruz, how would you turn your relationship with them into a practice? And I say you could just talk about the things you have in common as a human, that I would actually want to talk to Ted Cruz about the Princess Bride, you know? Yeah. And just to develop a sense of shared humanity. And that's that's coming from another one of Chogyam Trungpa's, uh, my favorite quotes of his, where he says, if you're having a hard time generating compassion for someone, you should contemplate that everyone loves something, even if it's only tortillas. That's the literal quote. I love and, tortillas. Right. You probably love more than that, too. We could probably connect on more than that. But that if that's all we could connect on, if you if you kicked puppies in your sleep, which I'm not really convinced that Ted Cruz doesn't kick puppies in his sleep, but you could still connect on tortillas. Right. I could still connect with him on Princess Bride. And I think it creates a situation, I think, with family and with other difficult relationships where 
you learn to connect with someone, you learn to hold them in um, your heart, you learn to listen to them, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're empowering their view of the world, you know? Yeah. You can really disagree with a member of your family and love them on a certain level, and that doesn't mean I'm going to give you what you want necessarily. You know, you can, you can be kind and friendly to a person like Ted Cruz and then just register people to vote for his opponent, you know? Yeah. And I think that's actually the way we need to navigate the modern world is we have to disagree. Um, and, but we have to also, um, generate compassion and, and kindness and love. And those actually can go hand in hand. And I think that starts with the family. Sometimes we have to work things out with our family. We have to disagree. We have to proclaim our own individuality uh, and sometimes even take space from our families. But we can do that and generate love and respect at the same time. Um, now, that's a lot harder, uh, the, the more difficult or abusive a family history might be. So I'm speaking about this in sort of an idealized case. Um, but uh, it is considered by my lineage like one of the hardest places to practice is within one's own family. So um, even knowing that, I think, generates compassion because if you go straight from your meditation cushion or your yoga mat, and then you're at a family holiday and you felt very peaceful on the cushion and then all of a sudden you feel like a basket case, uh, it might just be because it's a harder practice, you know? Yeah. Sometimes interpersonal practice is, is much harder than personal practice. Yeah. And it's okay to admit that. Oh, that's so true. Ethan, you are literally one of my favorite people and I am so grateful that you wrote this book and The Road Home as well, which is still one of my favorites also. So um, for the people that, those of you that are listening that didn't hear our first interview, it's gonna be linked onto this particular uh, podcast as well. So you can go back and hear that. And the links to both of his books will be on the show notes as well. Uh, I don't want to end the conversation because it's so good, but I want to respect your time. And uh, I'm just, I'm so grateful that you, you agreed to do this again. Hopefully you'll do it again. <laughs> we can, we so can, can talk about Rosie, other topics. Go ahead. Can I ask you one final question? Sure. So, so part of what I wanted to do with writing the Dharma, the Princess Bride is kind of give people permission to think about the pieces of pop culture that have really influenced their spiritual lives. Yes. You know, it could be a, it could be a song, it could be a movie, it could be, you know, a piece of visual art or a novel. Do you, if you were going to write like, you know, your, your tantric and yogic and Vedic and, and, uh, mindful path, if you were going to write like the Dharma of, of Rosie's life, like what, I'm just wondering what piece of pop culture you'd use. Oh my goodness. Um, I would, <laughs> I, oh my, that's such a good question. All right, think about it for next time when we talk. Oh, all right, I'm going to think about it. Let me, let me uh, ruminate on that for a little bit. Um, Ethan, just because I asked you before and I ask all of my guests, uh, obviously, you know, Radically Loved, it's about us creating uh, this community and generating uh, support for each other and for everyone and it's this idea that we are radically uh, loved and radically connected and we're completely supported by God, universe, source, uh, emptiness, fullness, whatever higher power of your understanding. Um, so the questions to you are, how do you feel radically loved and what do you radically love? Oh, yeah. Um, well, all of those for sure. I mean, I think... Uh... 
um, I, I feel radically loved um, these days by um, really trying to connect with uh, very mundane and practical things simultaneously to connecting with um, uh, deeper or more mystical or more kind of like spiritual truths. And, you know, I have to definitely say that um, having a daughter who a little over five months old uh, I've never participated in anything that was simultaneously as mundane and practical like um, you know changing diapers and just learning the way she likes to be held at what angles and you know how many minutes I have to walk her back and forth before she falls asleep at night just like very mundane and practical and at the same time when I look at her sometimes it's like staring back into the origins of the universe and um to have, uh, you know, a really cool little kiddo, but a, 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 a situation that is simultaneously that mystical and that, uh, you know, kitchen sink level practical. Um, that's my current experience of both feeling radically loved by the universe and uh, radically loving somebody. So I hope that's a good answer. Oh, that's a great answer. I'm, I can't wait. Next time I'm in New York, you're definitely going to see me. I can't wait to meet her and meet your sweetie and just kind of get uh, the energy of the whole family. So uh, do you like how I just invited right. myself over? That's hilarious. It's great. It's awesome. <laughs> Very awesome thing to do. So where can people connect if they want to reach you directly? Where can they go to get more information or, or to tell you how much they love your book? Yeah. So uh, ethannickturn.com, N-I-C-H-T-E-R-N.com. Uh, ethannickturn.com is my is my website, and people can get on my uh, monthly email list. There's, you know, I uh, do podcasts and uh, online Dharma talks and articles, and uh, travel around a fair amount these days. I'm mostly based in New York uh, at the Shambhala Center here in New York, uh, but uh, yeah, that would be the best way to see what's what's upcoming in my world, both in person and online. Oh, that's so good. Thank you so much for doing this. I can't wait to have you on again. And you're amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rosie. It's really a pleasure for me as well. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I am so excited to continue to do this. Please share this with your friends. Email us. Message us on Instagram at Rosie Acosta or on Twitter at Rosie Acosta. Subscribe on iTunes. Write a review. We love doing this, so please help us continue to keep this podcast going. Thanks for listening.